Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. Coming up, we've got seven minutes with Amanda Thurlow, the engagement manager at the ACCA, a well-known events industry blogger and conversation starter. Amanda shares her thoughts on the industry. Um, so I started seeing the value in building a community, looking for other people to connect with. And then I could find everybody sort of down in London and they're all connecting, going to events and things like that. Then we've got some brilliant advice for events organisers, courtesy of the events agency Beyond, on enhancing stakeholder engagement and event project results. My bosses always used to say, you know, never say no to a client. But actually, there are times you need to say no. But first, Theresa May's holiday plans. Finally, a government deal that recognises the events industry. The city with a sensible bedtime. Sadiq Khan responds to the Nighttime Commission's advice on making London a nighttime city. And shutting the door on the hospitality industry, what will restrictions on EU migration look like post-Brexit? All that and more as Charlotte Gentry, Director of Pure Events, Martin Fullard, Editor of Conference News, and Ed Poland, Co-Founder of Hirespace, sit down for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Evening, Ed. Charlotte Gentry, Pure Events. Hi. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Congratulations, Charlotte. You have been recently appointed to the board of Evcom. Am I, I right? I know, and I'm very excited about it. Actually. For any listeners who don't know what Evcom is or does, can you tell us? Uh, Evcom is the trade association for um, what used to be Eventia, actually, and it brings together live um, live events alongside screen um, and uh, and film. So it's actually a very it's a very interesting mixture of people on the board. Um, and what we're trying to do is actually um, really sort of cross-pollinate a little bit more rather than it just being screen and events people, but actually get everybody to understand what everybody actually does and perhaps do more together. A lot of market- marketers, right? Uh, yes, um, but two quite interesting perspectives on um, on the association. So it's, it's, it's going to be fun and it's going to be really interesting and also very educational, I think. Um, there's lots of different um, different viewpoints and um, yeah any big things coming up in 2019 to look out for from Evcom yeah um, I would think that there are going to be there's definitely going to be a lot more information coming out there about um, the conference that they do every year the content um, in fact this year and it's on the 5th of September for anybody listening we have got Martin Sorrell speaking which I think will be quite quite interesting um, this year so there's a push also to get also to get younger members of the industry involved because um, I think the perception is that it's actually only for senior agency members and so we're trying to push um, the millennial um, group young listeners young listeners get in touch with come hence please fcom and we have martin fullard editor of conference news martin how are you doing i'm nodding sagely you have launched recently the Conference News 30 Under 30. Yep, right? it's, the, uh, it's the third year we've run the CN30 Under 30. Uh, it's an annual campaign we run for event professionals aged 30 and under who have you know, not achieved anything specific, but who are certainly making their mark in the industry across a, across a, range, of, you know, a range of different disciplines. Uh, it's mainly kind of focusing on the agency and corporate 
uh, sectors. You know, have you run an event in the last 12 years, sorry, 12 years, 12 months? Uh, have you achieved anything resounding? You can either submit yourself or indeed if you're an employer and you've got, you know, you're very proud of one of your employees, then, you know, you can submit them too. So you'll find the uh, the entry form on our website conference-news.co.uk and you'll just look for cn30 under 30 and you submit online it's a really simple form just requires you to not be shy about yourself you know there's no shame in just being proud of what you've achieved and we want to recognize that and the achievement can be anything and a big amazing event or a number yeah. of events or what's the what's the yeah kind it of... can it, you know it can be that it could be finding unique solutions to problems or you know have you really made an impact with your with your company or your you know or your clients and what we want to do is we want to put these guys, you know, front centre of the industry. So in the year that follows, we'll invite them along to roundtable discussions. We'll put them on panels. We want them to feel that they are part of something. And it's all part of enhancing the event industry's, you know, profile, really. We've actually submitted somebody every year for um, for other um, uh, awards of this nature. And it's a massive morale booster. Yeah, I'm I sure. mean, for the individual, it's a huge feeling of being um, of achievement and being very much a part of of the sector and the one of the only times that actually younger people get recognized in that way brilliant so employers in agencies or corporates submit your high flyers for the conference news 30 under 30 uh, conferencenews.co.uk 30 under 30 we we didn't have a news digest last time we had a event lab podcast sustainability special so we haven't yet discussed theresa may's tourism sector deal which it seems has been well received by the events industry um many pledges martin i know you know some of them one of them is the construction of 130,000 new hotel rooms i think there's 10,000 apprenticeships is this great news for the meetings and events world absolutely it is uh so this was announced goodness about three three weeks ago or so uh, a tourism sector deal was published by the government uh, and there was in black and white a focus on business events which is an absolute win it means that you know the great work done by everyone in the industry is finally filtered through to government it is recognized so to drive the business events and as the uk cam survey we published a few weeks ago suggested uh you know conference and meetings this industry is worth £20 billion in direct expenditure across the UK. So the government's well aware of the contribution our sector makes. Uh, yeah, as you say, there's 130,000 hotel rooms to be built. Uh, specified that that is not London-centric, that is across the UK, which is really important. There's a lot of upcoming destinations around the UK, which are really strong players in this area. Uh, there's also, although I'm not sure how this works exactly, they say that there's £250,000 pledged to improve Wi-Fi, specifically in conference centres. Now, to me, a quarter of a million quid doesn't sound too much for Wi-Fi across every conference centre in the land. Maybe, I don't know, they're focusing on dodgy areas, or maybe that's even per venue if you're really lucky. I don't know. Uh, but that's something to bear in mind and keep your eyes open for. But it's certainly a massive win for the industry. Wi-Fi is a big topic of conversation, isn't mm. it? A lot of venues don't embrace it, probably to the extent that many corporate corporates and clients demand maybe this will help well i think one of the biggest frustrations is um still being charged for it um in a lot of locations which actually now is pretty unacceptable actually if you're spending vast amounts of money on venue hire it should absolutely be thrown in um so so yeah um, and then if it doesn't work the the frustration when you're trying to live stream something and it's not actually strong enough to be able to do it um yeah you invariably have to bring some level of booster in to be able to, to deal with the problem we have spoken on this podcast and before about whether the government does enough to support 
business and events in, in the UK. Is this a sign that things are, are improving? I think it's a sign that the Tory party are doing something sensible, um, <laughs> which um, I think they need some positive PR, quite frankly, at the moment. So um, uh, it may have just have been a very good distraction from all the other chaos that's been going on um, for, for quite a while. Um, but yes, you know, obviously business events are a, are a major stream of income um, uh, to this country, uh, you know, outside of leisure, leisure tourism. So um, potentially it's not discussed enough about how important that actually is. Michael Hurst, OBE, he's the chair of the Business Visits and Events Partnership and the Events Industry Board, which advised the government in the creation of the deal. He says, we're delighted that business events feature so prominently in the deal with the supplementary publication of an international business events action plan. This is a very positive endorsement of the importance of the sector to showcase the UK uh, key economic sectors, grow trade, exports and inward investment. So strong. That's a very ringing endorsement. Yeah, no, uh, amazing. And, you know, I think um, obviously there is um, with the with the um, extra amount of bedrooms being um, being pledged, um, uh, you know, there is an expectation that, the you know, we build it, they will come. Um, uh, whereas, you know, there's often been a perception that will they come to the UK when they can go to Spain, south of France, where climate sort of tends to overtake people's decision-making processes because of Brexit? Are we now um, not as expensive? Are people getting better deals? Um, is that a bit more of a, a pulling factor? Well, in uh, in the ICA rankings, the UK and London, and, you know, to be fair, other UK cities as well, the likes of Edinburgh, Glasgow, you know, always feature very prominently and high up in the ICA rankings, which is a huge big deal. It really is a big deal. Uh, so we really are cementing our position as a, as a country that takes this industry seriously. And, you know, you think about all these international associations, you know, they are booking, you know, a good few years in ahead. Uh, and there is competition in Europe, but yet we still, despite Brexit, the UK still performs strongly. So this can only be a, only be a benefit. It's very conspicuously called, well, in this article anyway, Theresa May's tourism sector deal. Give her it, something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good legacy. But when our next prime minister comes in, you know, what certainty can we have that this will continue? I mean, this has often been something that has been cited as a reason why the government can't get behind business events in a massive way because of the, the lack of kind of continuity of, of governments. Do we think Boris Johnson will pick this up and run with it or is there a danger? I don't think it's in any danger, to be honest. I think it's already set in stone and, and pledged and once that's it, that's it really. I think he'll be, um, I think his major focus is going to be on one thing and one thing only because everyone's expectation is that he's going to pull us out of, of Europe. Whether we like it or not, yeah, it's happening are, on the 31st. We are going to need of... a good reputation as much as possible to yeah. make sure the world knows that we're not isolationist. Yeah. So absolutely vital that London remains relevant in the in the world. This is a good step. How important is it that London is a city that thrives at night? And the reason I bring this up is because the mayor of London has responded, I think, in the last couple of days to the recommendations of the nighttime commission uh, which has done a big report think night london's neighborhoods from 6 p.m to 6 a.m it's all about how we keep london thriving at night and recognize the nighttime economy is this a big thing for events for events um possibly i don't know whether it's such a big thing for events but it's, it's definitely a big areas. thing i think i think it's a i think it's a big thing for, for tourism i mean we're never going to um compete i don't think probably with a barcelona or a um, or an Ibiza or, you know, somewhere where you specifically go to party until six o'clock in the morning. Although there are some phenomenal clubs in London that, 
you know, um, if you go to work at eight o'clock, um, you know, every day during the week or nine o'clock in the morning, you probably aren't in those clubs until six o'clock in the morning. But there are some amazing clubs in London, um, which only tourists actually spend their time in. Um, and, you know, we have it's so fragment. London is an enormous place. It's a, quite a fragmented place made up of little villages. And so unlike walking into the um, the big area that you that you go out in in Barcelona, which is one main strip. We don't really have that in London, so that makes it harder to to, to keep shops open till ten o'clock at night because there's not really that demand for it. Our climate doesn't necessarily mean that people are still out there shopping in the same kind of way amongst drinking and all the rest of it. We don't really have that environment. It's just a very different kind of environment because we are a business orientated city as opposed to a holiday vacation location but does it, does, does it matter as a destination for events do you think it do, doesn't matter so much that uh, i think that's a tricky one i guess because i think if you are coming here as a, as a as a conference delegate invariably you're going to be concentrated in areas maybe around excel or, or you know olympia or somewhere like that i think yeah maybe you designate an area like a business development district or something like that where you could say okay right well this square half mile is you know dedicated to bars that are open till three in the morning and then be rest assured your exhibitors are going to be leathered the following morning still i think i'm like a third of london's workforce work through the night yeah Something i saw that. Like that and it's like the i think there's a specific economy between uh like 8 p.m and 6 a.m that is worth that sec that time wow. sector alone is worth 26 million pounds wow. to london uh but again you know we're talking about a heavy nightclub scene and this is great for london revelers i mean how much of this is i don't know just casual dining in restaurants or shopping so it doesn't strike me as being something overly relevant to say maybe the conference and meetings industry yeah i mean it's very wide ranging the report covers a huge range of issues from you know transport and licenses and everything else but from what you guys are saying London probably will never be the Barcelona, the party city that people are going to go to for that type of thing. But it doesn't doesn't matter so much. No, but I mean, also, you know, you don't really want your delegates absolutely sort of honking of um, of alcohol when they sort of walk into the room the next day and not really able to function when you've thrown sort of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds at a you know at a two day conference or something. It's not really, which is why I think probably quite a few of these conference centres aren't right in the centre of, um, you know. Soho or, or whatever, it's not really, um, it's not really what you're after. Having said that, we have done events in places like Brussels, where again you can walk around Brussels, um, where people have ap- actively sort of tapped us on the shoulder after dinner and say, right, there's about fifty of us, and we all want to go to said um, club or, or or bar or whatever. So it is definitely something that people very much want to do in that type of environment, but it's not necessarily something that you would sort of say hey we're an amazing city to go out and you know party please come to london because for for your conference because we'll you know it's we'll... 12 degrees and drizzling <laughs> yeah, exactly staying on on policy and, and politics this is uh, this is in conference news actually and this is about the uh, impact of brexit on the hospitality industry that's the migration advisory committee that says it's closing the door on hospitality staff in post brexit britain so this is about the effect of eu migrancy on the hospitality sector and what that will look like post brexit martin you yeah it's it's 
nothing here nothing here is set in stone i think that's the first thing to make absolutely clear so there's a lot of kind of speculative legislation well, that sounds very intelligent uh <laughs> about you know how the landscape of business will will look post brexit so nothing's gone through the commons yet uh, and of course the headline figure there is that eu nationals post brexit will need to be earning at least thirty thousand pounds a year to stay in the uk uh what has sort of slipped under the radar we did cover it was that Sajid Javid the Home Secretary who announced this policy before Christmas last year has recently rode back on that and said he's going to review it we don't know kind of what that means but of course what we do know is that there's a huge number of people who work in our industry and hospitality who do not meet that 30k threshold uh it would be crippling to a number of businesses that's just the reality of it uh there is a temporary 12-month visa uh, which eu nationals would be able to apply for it comes with a load of restrictions such as you know you wouldn't be able to bring your family over and and so on uh it's not great news if this as it is today goes through but it hasn't gone through we don't know what landscape we're going to be looking at so charlotte how, how much of a worry is this for meetings and events i'll give you some stats it's it says that the hospitality sector is one of the highest recruiters of EU nationals. They account for 19% of the overall workforce. That's restaurants and hotels. Hotels particularly affected by it. The report said that 75% of servers, 37% of housekeepers, 24% of chefs, 23% of housekeeping managers, and 13% of hotel managers well, originate from the EU. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very um, it's very frightening for all of those people who are employed in those jobs who clearly aren't earning as much as 30000 a year um, to potentially be on their way out of here, which, which is obviously a really horrible thought. Um, I, I have views that I think that the UK needs to spend on occasion a lot more time on home policy and look at where we should be educating people in, in the UK who are British nationals to 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 fill a lot of jobs that people can't be bothered to do because they think that they're, they're beneath them um, and that we should be educating in our in our industry an awful lot more um, within the hospitality sector um, which would mean that you know essentially we wouldn't have to be looking a lot further afield for people to fill those roles but actually people would be willing to work and I think that's an attitude um, issue that perhaps that's a much bigger discussion, but it's it's obviously very um, concerning that that it would deeply affect all these all these Europeans that would potentially not be able to stay. Well, what's the Armageddon situation here? If, if you know if, we, if it can't be resolved, they say nineteen percent of the overall workforce. I don't know how many of that nineteen percent are on under thirty thousand pounds. Suspect a fair but amount it of it, doesn't, and that's a huge. It doesn't problem, specify right? whether this law would stick to the people who are already here or just for anyone this time to come here post brexit it doesn't we're not actually sure about that uh on the face of it it's a bonkers policy it makes no sense Thirty pounds salary in london won't get you very far where a thirty pounds salary in carlisle might get you something pretty damn decent on the property market so it's just too poorly thought out and i i can't i just can't see the government going with this Okay, so the fact that we're not a party town, not so much of a problem. The fact that we're going to have no one working in any of our <coughs> venues soon, probably a bit of a problem. It's Yes, yeah, it's looking good, isn't it? <laughs> That's enough high policy for us. We're going to talk about monsters and power-ups in virtual reality go-karts. This was spotted on the BBC. Mm. Loads of VR <coughs> experience going on in I events. This one is... Martin. 
Over to you. Before in a life before journalism, I spent thirteen years running go kart tracks uh, in the UK and abroad. Listeners, you're probably wondering whether Martin has ever raced Damon Hill, aren't you? A good few times, yes. I even taught his son once years ago. Ah, oh, lovely. Very exciting. And you beat him? I did. Of course, I beat him. But so I, you know, I know karting back to front, inside out, run circuits, home and abroad. Uh, be assured, there are risks high risks involved you have to be wearing flame retardant race suits you have to wear gloves you have to wear helmets the helmet has to fit the insurance is tight uh could, could we explain quickly what this is have you seen this it? is what i'm about these carts or what this concept is is these guys are wearing ar headsets so you can still see through what's going on but you've got all these uh you know goodness knows what it is mushrooms and all sorts of things bananas and whatever else you're throwing at them and it's just like mario kart where the people are driving the carts without race suits on without gloves without helmets and they've got all these kind of external distractions through the through the the ar headset it's very difficult to concentrate driving a cart around a circuit when you've got all that going on and people will get hurt i'm i'm massively against that that's my boring milk crate speech over, but I think that is uh, negligent activity. I think go-karting is absolutely terrifying. I mean, I love to drive quickly. Um, I just love speed and love the concept and have been around a, car a, couple of, uh, around a track a couple of times and bashed into the sides of the walls on many occasions, which is flipping sore. Um, it's when you when you crash a cart, it you know on, on one of these tracks, it's it's pretty pretty punchy. So we're going to see these at events soon. Well, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, it's a it's a gimmick. You won't see them at any event I'm involved with. Uh, but yeah, yeah. health and safety are going to love it, aren't they? It's I, I can't see how they would have even insurance for that. It'd be yeah. better with real bananas. <laughs> yeah. uh, there'd be some sort of like campaign against food wastage or something on your back there's no winning anymore is there no. there's no having fun the bananas have fe have feelings <laughs> only if they're a certain shape according to the <laughs> eu regulation apparently that's a thing and yeah. on that note thank you very much martin Thanks, bullard editor of conference news thank charlotte you. gentry pure events see Thanks, you next Ed. time good to see you Next, I'm sitting down with Amanda Thurlow for some quick-fire events questions for another 7 Minutes With. I am joined by Amanda Thurlow. Amanda, welcome to the Event Lab podcast. Hello, happy to be here. Just to kick things off, do you want to give, give our audience a very brief description about what it is you do in events? Yes, I work currently as a member engagement manager for ACCA, Association of Chartered Certified Accountants. But within that, I organise a lot of events for the members um, and sort of related to that, but kind of outside that as well. I guess um, I'm quite proactive on social media within the event industry so you'll find me on twitter and instagram facebook linkedin so we've got seven minutes okay so let's start with some time. questions <laughs> about you uh okay. what is your favorite cocktail oh my favorite cocktail it has to be pink it's fruity and berry and sweet and that's it and then i ask for a creation Nice, so I like it. I get different ones all the time. <laughs> got, the got the rules, person. but it gives you a variety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is your favourite international events destination? Last year, I went over to Belgium. They've got some really cool and interesting venues over there. The Guild Hall in Bruges was very beautiful. It was very historic and yeah, beautiful gilded. And yeah, was a, that was quite pretty. If you were to go back to the start of your career yeah. and give yourself a piece of advice, what, what would you go back and tell yourself? I think I would tell myself to 
have a look more into the different types of careers that are available within the event industry. Mm. But it's just like interesting to see all the different kind of varied roles within mm. that. Would you rather uh, organise the next royal wedding or the next fire festival? But whenever you see like the royal weddings and things on the TV, the amount of detail and the planning and the precision royal weddings like the next level and so many protocols and things to abide by i think i'd be a bit worried that i was gonna say the wrong thing to the wrong person or not quite get my cutlery aligned properly on the table or you know um i think in terms of opportunity i think fire festival if such a thing exists what would make the perfect delegate Oh, do you want like a list? (laughs) Starting from the beginning. (laughs) Someone that paid attention to all the kind of communications and things that you sent out, read all their joining instructions before the event and were fully on the ball, filled in their appraisal form after the event. Just those things, I guess. Maybe someone someone like that is out there somewhere. Yeah. So I mean, you've you've had a lot of success with your your following on social media, your blogs that kind of explore the industry. I guess what I guess, what do you see as the role of influencers within the kind of meetings and events industry? I think to share experiences and knowledge, because I think there's um, on, online is a good place to connect with people from all over the world. It's nice to see what are other event planners doing. And I yeah. think that was a bit of a gap in the market, I guess, that I saw. I was in Birmingham and I started using Twitter because my friend was using Twitter in a different space, but he was making lots of connections with people. Um, So I started seeing the value in building a community, looking for other people to connect with. And then I could find everybody sort of down in London and they're all connecting, going to events and things like that. But obviously being in the Midlands, I was slightly disconnected from stuff. So Mm. it was just nice to be able to see what they were doing and share their experiences and stuff. It is that for me, it is sharing with other people what I'm doing and hopefully kind of inspiring people and giving them opportunity to see things that they might not necessarily see themselves. Bring that community together. Yeah. Racing through our time here. So just to kind of finish off, part of our content focus, uh, this kind of cycle at Event Lab, uh, is current affairs. So I've picked out uh, a few of the interesting stories that have been chatted about on the News Digest, one of our regular Event Lab podcast features. And I was trying to get kind of your your take on them. So I'll kind of of run through and get your your thoughts. Uh, So this first one from Exhibition News, uh, basically kind of a think piece saying that the business events need to be drawing more inspiration from festivals. I love that idea. People are going to festivals and having these experiential Mm. kind of activities taking place and then they go to events like business events are going to seem pretty behind the times and especially I guess as the younger generations come through then that's going to be an expectation but then I also appreciate that the there are AGMs or government meetings or things like that there's going to obviously be less opportunity for that so, so this next one is from cnit magazine yeah uh it's the rather interesting t- statistic that one in seven event attendees have met a significant other at a b2b event yeah but when i read that article it also pointed out that a third of people had got people that they wanted to avoid which was interesting because <laughs> so that was the higher <laughs> statistic <laughs> do you think that the i guess that the poor state of public tra- transport or the lack of funding is a, is a problem for kind of the events industry outside london it's definitely a challenge, but yeah. 
things we have to work to overcome, I guess. And hopefully, you know, there are things, HS2 is a big thing in the Midlands at the moment. So, you know, hopefully that will help with the lack of connections between different places as well. Final question. Yep. What is your favourite venue? Oh, do you know, this is tough. This is tough. I've, <laughs> because I've been to a lot of venues over the years that I've worked in events. But then also there's so many that I haven't been to either. Um, so it's really hard. You know, there's, I think at the end of the day, I think I think it's less about, I guess, the venue. There are some beautiful venues there are and you know it depends what your event is as well so you pick the perfect venue for a particular event so your idea of a perfect venue changes all the time but I think whatever venue it is the overall thing has got to be about the service and the people at the venue so you could go to a stunning venue and it might fit all your needs logistically but if the people working at the venue are difficult or challenging to work with then obviously that makes your job as an event planner more difficult in itself i think we're we're, uh that is our seven minutes but yeah thank you so much for joining (laughs) us Recorded live at our Event Lab series event, Kate Cassar, the director of Beyond, and Alice Hancock, senior event manager, are sharing their essential advice for enhancing the success of your event, improving its ROI, and streamlining planning communication. I set up Beyond 15 years ago. And at the time, I'd done lots and lots of working events. I'd then gone on to be a marketing manager. I'd set up a marketing department for a law firm. Um, It was based in the US. My whole team was in the US. But I was based on my own in London, reporting to about 30 partners, all of whom had different ideas on how an event should look. So I didn't find there was that cohesion that I was used to with an agency where we all got round a table and we brainstormed. These were 30 people with completely disparate ideas of what we now call ROI objectives. So it was a really, really steep learning curve and I didn't last long. I actually left after less than a year and I set up Beyond. And the point about Beyond was that it was an agency not just to do project management of events, but to consult on events because at the time, events were actually being taken away from agencies and being being arranged by in-house staff many of whom actually weren't doing this as a day job. They were doing it on top of their day job. So beyond, we still do projects. We do lots of big projects. But we also consult from conception to delivery, training, or doing coming up with strategic ideas for planning event programmes, for you to put on events with less stress, with less effort, with more tools, and easier when it's on top of your day job. So... You all know then that events mean different things to different people. And a lot of your job is to manage those expectations. So really, we're looking in that kick-off meeting and essentially to break it down what needs to be communicated for the business, for the success of the business, for that event. Really clearly set of what you need to achieve, both creatively, strategically, and to fit your budget. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go off on a tangent and come up with these really brilliant ideas which you have no way of satisfying because you've not got something to back them up. We always ask our clients what do they want to achieve from the event. 
And there's quite often, depending on how many people are in the, in the kickoff meeting, there's quite often lots of different, sometimes competing objectives. Um, so part of that meeting is to really whittle that down into one or two, actually we sometimes say maximum of, of three key, clear objectives, just for the purely simple purpose of not diluting the message of that event then you stand a much better chance of actually then being able to say you've succeeded and you've made those objectives. If you have too many, then you're just not only diluting the purpose, but you're also setting yourselves up for not quite getting there. And in our experience, we, we do get to those objectives in the kickoff meeting, and we'll touch on this a little bit later on, but during the course of the event um, planning process, you get other other important people sort of feeding in with their take on what the event should be. Be assertive. You guys are the ones who oversee all of this. And you guys are the ones who know whether it is realistically going to work or not. And as much as you're told, particularly agency side, my bosses always used to say, you know, never say no to a client. But actually, there are times you need to say no. So you might need to do it incredibly diplomatically, but be really assertive. If you know something is either going to work or not work, then say it up front. Because your bosses won't have any idea of the impact of this kind of stuff. You know, they're going, an 80-piece orchestra is really impactful. Everybody's going to get there. It's going to sound fantastic. They're not thinking, oh, but the catering's got to come through that access door and the sound has got to do their, their sound check. They don't have any of those things to worry about. All they're thinking about is the end result. Because you've got to think about the process. So be really assertive in your communication. ROI tends to be a bit of a buzzword in the industry. I mean, years ago, we were given huge budgets. And ROI wasn't that much of a consideration. It was great if it happened. Um, but it wasn't, wasn't necessarily the forefront of, of our clients' minds. Their, their whole objective, really, was to put on a great show. Um, so, like we said in the last slide, agree your ROI targets, really. Much like any, any marketing exercise, you need to know where you want to end up in order to plan your, your event in its entirety. Um, and we've sort of whittled it down to two types of ROI. There's what we call hard ROI, which is your sort of hard facts, real clear data that can be collated. Um, say you want to increase your attendance on your last event you did, last year's event. That's really easy to, to measure. And then we come into soft ROI. So this is what we tend to encounter quite a lot. It's the, almost the warm and fuzzy ROI, the how things aren't necessarily easily quantifiable. But it might be a feeling that you yes. want to invoke in your guests. Or it's about how they feel about your brand, um, how they react to your brand, how they might talk to other people about your brand. Um, it's, it's, it could be as simple as, did they have a great time? For staff events rather than client events, it could be how motivated people feel afterwards, two months later, six months later, a year later. It's much more touchy-feely and marketing-based rather than hard data-based. Yeah, so it's, it's really that kind of ROI is, tends to be more of a slow burn as well. You might not be able to get those immediate um, that immediate data across within even within a month or so. It might take six months to really gather that, that feedback and that data. 
but then you, you get a real sense of, of what works in your events in order to get that um, feeling across in your audience. Um, you also have to think about who will be responsible. It's not going to necessarily be you, the event planner, the event manager. It might be the sales team. It might be the marketing team. It's very easy for a PA or for a marketing person or for an events person to feel, oh, phew, we've done it. We've pulled it off. The event was a success. Great. It's the next morning. I can now read my emails again, get on top of everything else and start the rest of my job. You know, actually, in a way, and it's a real cliche, but in a way, that event is just the beginning of it because that's the beginning of the measurement because it's not until after the event that you measure the success. So you need to make sure that, as Alice says, the right people have been at the event, if it's, for instance, the marketing people or the sales people who are going to be measuring attendance. But it's also things like um, making sure that the details are uploaded into a CRM system. You know, is that your IT team? Is that your tech team? Is that the marketing team? Who is it that's inputting all of the data in afterwards? Who is it that has put together surveys, if it's something as simple as surveys going out to employees afterwards? Make sure that is all done. Don't leave the event when the event is done. You know, make sure that follow-up is done. If the follow-up isn't done, the ROI is, is definitely not achieved. Mm, and your stakeholders will then question your, your planning abilities because it will come back on you. So you, you need to be able to justify to them um, why, why you're putting these measures in place along the way. Um, because if you don't have them, they're, nine times out of ten, your, your event budget will probably be cut or can be completely re reconfigured the next year. Um, so ROI goes hand in hand with, with engaging stakeholders because essentially what the stakeholders' aims are is, is, is growing and moving the business on. Okay, so barriers to success. Who, who has, can I have a show of hands, who's experienced the sort of the too many cooks? Um, <laughs> straight up, <laughs> love it. Um, the too many cooks uh, analogy. It's, um, it's one that comes up, as we've said, all the time and it's really difficult to manage. Um, but we, we always advocate just have one, one person to take that ownership of the event um, and all the event documents. So you, it might not just be stakeholders, it might be your colleagues as well feeding in um, bits to the, to the event process. We've managed it like that before because we tried it and we always like trying something and it doesn't quite work. Um, we were, as, as, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible delegator, I'm an event manager, I don't want to give out all of my, all of my work to somebody else, I like to be in control, um, and I'm sure a lot of you feel the same. Um, but it is really important to have one person take ownership of all the event documentation, because it takes one person to not input something on a spreadsheet or not change something when there's an update. And then you're like, who, who did that or who didn't do that? So we, we always have one sole senior event manager on each event. Yeah, and I think you need a very, very clear system of who is doing what. So for instance, you might use, um, you might use something like Google Docs, whereby you can share all the documents and people can go in and they can see live changes, but you need to be really, really secure that someone is able to edit, someone is able to just look at, you know, because as Alice says, as soon as something gets changed, and the senior person is not notified, you're in utter chaos. Um, you know, you can have events for several hundred people over several, over several days, 
or even just one small evening event can still get totally ruptured by someone inputting something and not telling someone else. And then there's this chaos of not knowing how it's happened and where it's happened and why it's happened and does the supplier know, etc., etc. So we have a really strong system in-house where there is one person always designated who gets final say on everything. And we then colour coordinate according to who is inputting and whether it's still TBC with the client. Be really, really specific and clear about who does what and who has the overall responsibility for it. We also, like I've touched on before, we have a lot of stakeholders having very differing agendas. Um, let me give you a quick example of that. We recently did an event at the beginning of the year. We had, this was the, the very creative kickoff meeting one. Um, with the minuscule budget. So we, were left, we had a lovely meeting with the CEO, the marketing director, and their, their in-house events manager. And we set out really clear objectives, really clear path. It was a two-month lead time on this event. It was very short. Um, and we had to be really very specific in what we wanted to achieve in a very short amount of time. Um, and we went away from that meeting feeling very clear on what we were doing and we were left in the very capable hands our day-to-day -day contact was the marketing manager and slowly but surely he started to feed in slightly slight variations on what we had agreed with the CEO and to the point where it, the event actually started to look completely different it turned out he was sort of trying to push his own agenda through this this sort of first event he was overseeing um, so we had to have a really diplomatic meeting with the CEO <laughs> um, and pulling everyone together. And it was a really sensitive um, way of going about things. We had to be really, really careful not to offend him. But also, we knew we had to stick to what we had originally agreed. So that's, that was a really tricky situation to manage. And managing stakeholders is, is tricky. You have to be very, very delicate. Firstly, try and get those original ROI objectives discussed down on paper and into some kind of official document so that you can refer back to it, so that when someone does start on what we call brief creep, um, you can tell that it's happening. You know, for us as an agency, it often means that we're using a lot more time and therefore money, which a client might not have, to go off-piste when we've quite clearly agreed a certain direction. Um, but in this case, it was basically two people going off in quite opposite directions and them both really fighting for what they were standing for and us stuck in the middle sort of trying to manage both the relationship and the event and as Alice says we had to sort of meander quite diplomatically and what ended up happening was a meeting between us CEO and marketing director where everybody could both air their thoughts but we could also bring the whole thing back to its original state, its original objectives. We pinned down the key decision makers at, at intervals just to reaffirm what we're doing, getting them to sign off on each critical stage. That not only helps you know that you're on the right path but it also gives you an insurance policy along the way. Um, you can go revert back to that sign-off, that sign-off meeting, and say, well, you signed this off, this was confirmed, I've got it in writing, get everything in writing, guys. So, <laughs> do it over a coffee and then follow up with an email, because that's really key in, well, it has been for us, in showing that you can go back and show the sign-off points mm. on each 
each element of the event. We do a lot of streamlining communication throughout the process. We've learned over the years um, our own ways of doing this. So we start off quite often um, being told that such and such a person has no time in their diary for another month, but we need to sign off on something <laughs> pretty urgently. So we schedule micro-meetings. You know, I'm sure you're all used to bosses saying, no, I can't discuss that. I don't have time in my diary. Just deal with it. So you do just grab them for five minutes when they have five minutes. And actually, sometimes they're more relaxed. Or sit in their Uber when they're going to the next meeting. Or, you know, just grab them in those few minutes, have your tick list, and as Alice says then follow it up further to our discussion. Um, these are the points we have, we have discussed and confirmed. I will add those into the plan now, which is so much easier than trying to get someone for an hour for a formal meeting. Actually, we've, we've done plenty of events where stakeholders aren't really interested in, in, in doing these touchpoint meetings and then wonder at the end of it why something's not here or they thought something else would happen at this point. And at no point had they mentioned it for the entire um, event planning process. So it's, it's, it's a really simple but really key element to your, your project plan when you set it out at the beginning. So you need a stakeholder that you can deal with for all of your logistical detailed questions. And you need a stakeholder who is all about the vision. And you need to work out which one you ask all the questions to. As much as you might have all sorts of platforms, internet platforms, for your to-do list as such. You want one platform which is your absolute event management bible for the whole event. You detail absolutely everything that needs to be done and that will, for me, that all goes in red. So when something's in red, it means it needs to be confirmed, it needs to be sorted, it needs to be um, signed off. Once that's done, it goes into grey. So I know it's done, I don't need to address it anymore. And whoever else is looking at event map, if, I'm, if we're having our touch point meetings with our stakeholders, they can see really clearly what has been confirmed and what hasn't been confirmed. And I always put the initials of the person that needs to confirm it next to the job, so they can see what they need to do as well. So it's all right sharing this document, but me being a sole event manager, I'll, I will generally be the one that edit it, edits it and controls its contents. So it starts off about a mile long, as you confirm things, it becomes shorter and shorter and shorter, and then that becomes your event schedule for on the day. So it actually becomes a really useful two-in-one document. All the floor plans go in there, all the AV details go in there, the AV spec, absolutely everything you could think of. The event manager on the day can go into that document and they have absolutely every single thing, rather than 10 sets of documents one with the contact details, one with the AV, one with the catering, you know. So instead of going through lots of different documents to find things, you've literally just got the whole darn lot in one. The important thing is that you have a system. Because events are so kind of chicken and egg, you might have got your sign-off from your CEO, but you haven't yet confirmed it with the venue. So you've still got that in-between stage, which needs to be marked on your plan. And we find that our stakeholders really appreciate it the way we set it out, it's really easy for them to just, again, they're quite time poor generally. So if anything's in red, they know that's what they know they need to read and take notice of. So they can just scan the document and know that X, Y and Z still need to be confirmed by them. So that helps them plan their work as well on the event. If you're an events organiser, then make sure you enter for one of our Superstar Event Organiser Awards at the Highest Base Awards this October. 
whether you think your team could be our event team of the year, or there's a person you think deserves special recognition with our Outstanding Event Contribution Award, follow the link to register in our show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Thanks very much for listening.